Hallelujah. Father, in light of your glorious holiness revealed to us in the scriptures, and in light of the situation of our souls, sinners such as we are, falling short of your glory in every conceivable way, not worthy of your presence, realizing that you have made a way for us to be reconciled with your holiness because your Son, Jesus Christ, has died for us. What can we do but stand in awe and reverence and worship before your holiness and your power to save this day? As we have commemorated these things that pertain to our eternal future in song today, I pray that you would reinforce our confession with more understanding as we open up your scriptures and learn more deeply the beautiful contours and the amazing truth of you and your word and your plan, how you moved heaven and earth and ordered all of history and creation itself to stand at attention before your decree to make way for the glory of God evident in what you have made and in new creation, what you make again. Lord, I pray that in this place, and whoever hears the words that are proclaimed this day, among those who can say, truly, I am born again, that we would be encouraged, reinforced, and equipped in our faith. And likewise, we pray, if there are any in the hearing of your word proclaimed, who have not confessed their sin, placed faith in Christ, and experienced that sweet reconciliation in the family of God, we pray that the proclamation of your word would move them to repent and believe, that they might join us, Lord, in worshiping you, in standing in awe of the God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ our Lord, has made himself known in his word, and has proclaimed his glories even in all creation. To you, uh, the Yahweh, covenant keeper, our great God and King, we praise and worship you this day and offer our thanks and attention. We pray that your spirit would use the proclamation of your scriptures this day to glorify yourself through the equipping of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm thankful to the Lord for gathering us. Smaller numbers such as we are, we pray for those who are missing due to sickness. They can rejoin us soon. In the meantime, let us encourage our souls with the immortal word of God by turning in our Genesis series to chapter 29. Genesis 29, verses 21 through 35 will be our text today as we consider the second half of this chapter, which chronicles Jacob's life, particularly his early marriage, married life, and several of his children. Jacob goes on, of course, uh, his children will correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll cover the birth of his first four, the oldest sons today, as well as the marriage to Rachel, to Leah, and more. The aim of this morning's message is to amplify the glory of the true covenant keeper by contrast, you could say by extension, by contrast to the failings of the covenant family. Who is the true covenant keeper in the story of Jacob? Well, it's increasingly obvious as we move through his biography that it is the Lord himself. Jacob certainly has nothing to boast, neither do we. The scriptures say that faith, after all, is a gift of God. It's not of ourselves, lest we would have the ability to boast. Likewise, each one, or, and along these lines, each one of us proves in our sin that we have nothing to show off by way of works and righteousness that are uh, systemic to us, endemic to us, that could render us presentable before a holy God. We don't have them. Jacob didn't have them. No one has them except Jesus Christ. And so today's story and our own experience emphasize how much we need him. The title of this morning's message is God's Will versus Man's Whim. God's will is the perfect decree. It's that which he accomplishes in time. It's that which he has ordered according to his word. Man's whim is just a stand-in phrase to describe the best idea we have at the time, given our limitations and the challenges that face us. Man's whim versus God's will. With your scriptures open, and more so your heart, out of reverence would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Let us hear his scriptures proclaimed in Genesis 29, 21-35. Here is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Then Jacob said to Laban, 
Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the morning he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week, excuse me, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. <clears throat> Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her, her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A quick reminder, the verses previous to the ones we just read, we understand the situation, right? You recall the circumstances. Jacob's heading north to Paddan Aram. A man without skills in the wilderness is nevertheless on his own journey of faith. He comes upon a well. And at the well, he meets Rachel, this beautiful shepherdess. She's lovely in appearance. Her sister's name is Leah. The scriptures say she's less desirable with this phrase. Her eyes were weak. Jacob loved Rachel, so he strikes up this deal with Laban, her dad, his future father-in-law. And his dad says, well, you know, kind of what do you have to give me in this exchange? He sees an opportunity to make a deal. Now we've understood so far that Jacob doesn't have much to his name at all, virtually nothing. So therefore, he conscripts himself into servanthood. One thing that Jacob has to offer, the only thing really, is his future labor. So he blurts out as a demonstration of his commitment and love for Rachel, I'll serve you seven years for Rachel. And he does so. So Jacob serves seven years, verse 20, for Rachel, and they seem to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So this is setting up like kind of one of those, oh, I'm, I didn't, not like I've ever read them, but maybe like this Amish, Amish romance novels, right? So in Christian whatever culture, there's kind of these sanitized versions as I imagine them of kind of uh, tender-hearted love stories where you have a bit of conflict, but in the end, you're all smiling and the happy ever after all kind of comes together. So this story kind of sounds like that. Man heading north, estranged from house, meets beautiful shepherdess, all of a sudden at a well, and pledges his love for her by uh, committing to work for seven years. Seven years is over, and we're just about to get to the happy ever after. And the wedding celebration is planned. There's going to be a week of festivities. And the bride comes out. She's veiled. It's dark. People presumably have been drinking quite a bit. And then the next morning, the veil comes off. Jacob is sober. His eyes are open. And whoa, that's an entirely different lady than I imagine. And then he's really upset. And suddenly this happy ever after story is interrupted with evidence of man's sin, man's folly, man's deceit, conniving, corruption, scheming, the whole bit. The origin story of the family history of the nation of Israel thus commences. Do you guys realize <clears throat> that Jacob's sons, I'm sure you know this, Jacob's sons are named or associated with the 12 tribes of Israel. Have you ever read a history book that kind of extols the virtues of the founding fathers of America? As you read most history books that kind of lionize or emphasize the virtues and the contributions and the noble characteristics of the foundations of their society and their national identity, they tend to hold them in a high light, right? They emphasize their noble characteristics and they tend to minimize their faults and failings. 
After all, history books aren't that interesting if it just tells you the mundane mistakes of another fool. No, our history books we usually write to commemorate what we think is most important, profound, and influential about the you know, foundations of our polit- political or cultural identity. Nevertheless, this, or in light of this, the Bible is really unique. It illustrates to us the difference between how a sinful man records history and how God gives a full disclosure of the human heart to draw a contrast between the only one who can truly be holy, righteous, noble, and so forth, and what everybody, if the veil of our false kind of facade is ripped, ripped away, is at heart. And that's kind of what we see here. The aim of my, this morning's message <clears throat> is to amplify the glory of the true covenant keeper. And that amplification in our text today comes by way of contrast with all the faults and frailty and failings and sin of everybody else in this covenant family. And this continues to be a theme. The Bible is not like any other historical nationalistic record of a proud people's history. If it was, it would no doubt read differently than our text today. It would likely embellish the success and minimize the flaws of its heroes. This history will go down in the record for future generations. And how will they read it? Will they appreciate and rally behind this great, with great patriotic pride? Or will they read the story of Jacob and realize, wow, I need a savior and Jacob needed a savior. Jacob certainly isn't the hero. Neither were any of his sons. Isaac and Abraham don't hold out hope ultimately for the human race. Is there a Messiah to come? The account of Jacob points us toward the Messiah to come. The early years of Jacob's family biography are nothing of this sort of kind of hagiography, which means to make a saint out of a sinner. Instead, they feature the folly and frailty and sin of human agency. That means just humans acting on their best information with the decisions in front of them to better themselves. So this underscores all along the miraculous, merciful hand of God preserving a people and a plan in spite of human sin, which has affected every generation since Adam. And we see that chronicled, don't we? All through Genesis. Sin has affected, infected, uh, right through the whole being of man, each individual and their story has proved as much so far in the record. This story will be redeemed, but not through Jacob. It will be redeemed through a significant son yet to come. This family, though privileged to be in the Messianic line, nevertheless needs the Messiah as much as anyone. Jacob and his family needed the Messiah, even though they were in the Messianic lineage. They needed Jesus Christ as much as anyone does, as much as you and I do. All of humanity is lost without Christ, the only one true perfect Messiah. The stage in our text today is set with this kind of list of characters. It's an introduction to the beginning, the early years of Jacob's marriage to his wives, and we'll cover the first few of his children. So kids, a little trivia for you. Well, kids, maybe you wait. Let's ask the adults first. So adults, how many wives did Jacob have? Adults only. Oh, Judah. Spoiler alert. Hi, uh, let's be honest, adults. Would you have answered what you'd have answered for? Typically, when we think of Jacob's wives, we think of two, Rachel and Leah. But Judah is correct. There's, in fact, four wives. And this illustrates, again, our main point today, that this is not a perfect, you know, romantic, happy ever after love story. Two of Jacob's wives, the reason he married the first two, are a result of being tricked by Laban, right? He loved Rachel had his heart set on her, but he was tricked. So he ended up having to marry two to get Rachel. But then the next two wives come as a result of internal strife and desperation and barrenness within his home. And you probably guessed it now. They followed kind of in the pattern of Sarai offering to Abram, her maidservant, Hagar, as a backup plan to give covenant children. Both wives, both Leah and Rachel did this. They offered Bilhah, and you'll notice the parentheses in our text in Zilpah as secondary wives to Jacob because the tension, the conflict, the jealousy, the competition of who can give him the most children so that they can be in good favor with the husband 
laid out this whole dysfunctional situation. Does this sound familiar? Yes, it does. Once again, the patterns of the sins of the fathers are being repeated, which we'll comment on in the course of this message. Nevertheless, the true grace, the only way the true covenant or the, the, uh, the covenant will be kept, the true grace of the true covenant keeper appears all the more glorious given this dysfunctional home, Jacob's early married years. So let me give you a heading and we'll notice three main points today about our text. Here's the heading. Jacob's early married life is marked by the following. Number one, man's covenant corruption. Uh, just man, humans in generally, generally screwing things up. Jacob's early married life is marked by covenant corruption. Secondly, Jacob's early married life is marked by a family's hope deferred. That means hope in the wrong thing, and then therefore discouragement follows. A family's hope deferred, that's a reference from Proverbs 13, which Lord willing will cover. Number three, Jacob's early married life is marked by Yahweh's covenant keeping, the covenant keeping power of God. Again, so those are three main points today. Jacob's married life is marked by man's covenant corruption. Verse 21, we see that, so there was something, what is a covenant? Kids, can you give me a short definition? What's a covenant? Anybody? Relationship is correct. Anyone want to expand? Yeah, what'd you say, Vera? Very good. An agreement between two or more people or two or more parties. And you guys, uh, uh, Theo mentioned promise. Uh, Judah mentioned the rela uh, relationship that God has with us. All these things apply. That's correct. In the most basic sense, a covenant is an agreement between two or more people or two or more parties. There was an agreement. There was a covenant of sorts between Jacob and Laban, right? So what was the conditions of the covenant? I work for you seven years. And then what are the benefits of the covenant? You give me Rachel's hand in marriage. But uh, Laban was sneakier even than Jacob was. And now we see kind of the chickens coming home to roost, if you will, to use that uh, kind of modern turn of phrase. Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife now that I may go into her for my time is completed. So, you know, to his credit, Jacob has worked seven long years. And now it's time for Laban's end of the bargain to be held up. This was the covenant arrangement after all. Verse 22, so Laban together, gathered together all the people of the place and made a great feast. Could you imagine the anticipation? Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. I mean, he's basically met the, the woman of his dreams seven years ago and has labored all the while. And he has, and the suspense is building and he can't believe finally. And he had so much joy. It says that these years passed quickly for him because of his deep and abiding love for Rachel. And now this big feast and everyone's gathered and the food is spread out and the wine is flowing freely. And then all the situation just completely falls apart. In the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went in to her. And here we see covenant compromise, a compromising situation. This always happens with man. You know, if now let's say Jacob took his court or took his grievance to court and he sued Laban. Laban agreed to give me his uh, daughter, his younger daughter, Rachel, in exchange for seven years. They both hire their attorneys. They make their case. What do you think Laban's attorney might say? Oh, your honor. He didn't specify which daughter. He agreed to give a daughter as in uh, a daughter's hand in marriage, but not necessarily Rachel, your honor. See, this is how man deals with covenants. He looks for loopholes and uh, scheming, conniving and tricking and deceiving to better his advantage, to get some leverage and to get his own way. And this is exactly what Laban was doing because Leo was the less desirable of his daughters and it was important to a man of his stature to have his daughters married off. He saw here an opportunity to compromise the covenant a bit, appeal to a technicality, and to trick Jacob and get both of his daughters married. And as far as it goes, it worked. <clears throat> the original language, by the way, of feast indicates a celebration. And uh, sometimes it's just translated drinking, a banquet occasion for drinking or a drinking bout. The same word is used to refer to both of those. Uh, a euphemism used today is partying, right? 
when someone says, oh, I did so much partying in my college years, you immediately think of your faculty suspended by irresponsible behavior, including, and not exclusively, but, but, but almost always including partaking in alcohol or drugs or something like that. The language indicates, because you might ask yourself, how in the world was Jacob tricked in such a way? Well, Jake was likely compromised as well. He allowed himself, presumably, to be caught up in the moment of this partying atmosphere. This banquet occasion for drinking, this celebration at the end of seven long years, no doubt Jacob had had one too many. How else would he be fooled in such a way? Add a few things together. What are those things? Well, first of all, you have uh, biblical, we, we have drunkenness. Secondly, you add uh, the night nightfall. Thirdly, a veil, which was likely over the uh, face of the bride-to-be. So drink, darkness, veil, plus party. What does that equal? Regrets in the morning. All of these things conspired to make Jacob trickable, if you will. This brings up a reference that we talked about before early, earlier in Genesis. And we called this, in, you can read about it in uh, the story of Lot. In, in the story of Lot, Genesis 19, 32 through 38, his daughters conspire to get their father pregnant. And how are they able to pull off the scheme? Well, by getting him drunk. And while we were going through that passage, we drew from it a principle. Drunkenness, biblically, isn't just drinking in excess, though that is certainly part and parcel to it. It can mean much more. And the principle is this. Whenever your, fac your spiritual faculties have been suspended so that you are, are uh, irresponsible, negligent, not faithful to your duty to guard the premises of what God has put you in charge of, yourself, your home. So in family government and self-government in particular, or that which God has placed you in charge of, if you submitted yourself to any influences that suspend your better judgment in that regard, that's where the sin of drunkenness comes in. Because you're not as sharp, you're not as aware, you're not able to use the faculties that God has given you to discern. The scriptures say in Hebrews that by reason of use, we are to have our senses exercised to discern both good and evil. A person who is really training hard for a particular task, let's say they want to excel as an athlete, they go through a very disciplined regimen. If you want to win an Olympic competition, you can't just take lightly or uh, in a cavalier fashion the preparation required for that task. You have to be serious about it. So you could ask the question, how much more serious the task of the Christian life? You know, another way to put it recently in Psalm 119, Paul says that a, a soldier does not concern himself with civilian affairs. What does that mean? Well, if you're caught up in all of the things, you know, the, uh, all of the opportunities for entertainment that the culture provides, and you never go through that basic training, and then you lose your sense of loyalty to your the authority, your general, and your mission, the task you're called to, then you will fail as a soldier. This describes Jacob in our text. This was a compromising situation. Laban had compromised the covenant, and Jacob, allowed, was his guard was down, and thus he was deceived. Jacob's early married life was marked by these kinds of things. Secondly, the consequences of sin. Notice 25b, <clears throat> what is this you've done to me? Jacob asked, did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Why then have you deceived me? Could not Isaac have asked this question of Jacob a few years ago? Uh, Jacob, why did you deceive me? You put on you know, skins and you brought a meal prepared. You lied and said that it was meat that Yahweh gave you in, the, in your hunting was successful and so forth. Why have you deceived me? Esau could have asked Jacob the same question. Listen, uh, my, you uh, broke my father's trust. You went against his preferences. You pretended you were me. Why did you, and tricked me out of my rightful blessing? Why did you deceive me? You see, now Jacob has met his match. The schemer has met a greater schemer. And he gets, if you will, a taste of his own medicine. And this illustrates to us the consequences of sin. 
the reaping and sowing principle in Scripture is pretty dramatically illustrated in Jacob's experience. Why did you deceive me? Well, one of the answers could be his, God is disciplining his son. Jacob was a man who was no stranger to deception. He was one who had cooked up and conspired with his mother to do deceiving things in the past. But now he's reaping what he had sown as his father-in-law has deceived him. Now the difference between the consequences of sin as perdition and the consequences of sin as discipline are also apparent. And this is the difference between someone who is in Christ ultimately and someone who is under condemnation. In other words, the scriptures say for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore no condemnation. That is to say, you do not owe the penalty of your sin if Jesus paid it for you. However, the scriptures go on to say in Hebrews 12 that the Lord, as a good father, disciplines the one he loves. And all discipline seems painful for the season, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. God is training Jacob, and he's doing so by bringing discipline to his son, and that discipline comes by way of illustrating the consequences of sin. And if Jacob is aware, if he's processing this, if he repents, if he grows, if he is sanctified, if he experiences growth in his own spiritual maturity, he can say to his kids, all 12 of them, one day, 13 if you count a daughter in there, he can say, listen, do not try to get ahead by your whims and by your wits. My grandfather did that. And the consequences were great. That Hagar proved not to be a sufficient answer to the covenant. And I tried to do it, and the consequences were great. Introduce strife into my home. The lesson is this, children. Trust the Lord. He is the true covenant keeper. Do not try to, in your own strength, through your own means, and through the cultural expectations of the day, Leave your Christian convictions and come up with a plan B. It will only yield pain and hardship. Serve the Lord. And as parents, we pray, don't we, that the lessons we learn the hard way, our children would learn the quote-unquote easy way, if you will. The idea being, Lord, please do not let my children repeat the sins of the fathers. These are the consequences that Jacob is repeating this, uh, as, or experiencing as a result of repeating the sins of his grandfather, Abraham. There's some sobering lessons here. Further consequences, 14 years of labor. 7 plus 7 plus 2 wives plus later 2 concubines. A lot of strife and a lot of situations that would not have been the case if the characters in this story had aligned their faith made their decisions, and stood their ground on the covenant promises of God. Where do you find comfort? Do you find comfort, security, assurance, and identity on the word of God? Or are you often tempted to covenant compromise, to come up with a plan B, or to look elsewhere, or to have options? You know what I mean? There are all kinds of things in life where we are tempted to look to other sources in order to better our situation. This spans the board. But the lesson of Jacob and the lesson of Scripture is to trust God's word, God's way, and God's timing, even to trust his affliction and the time of waiting that he sometimes allows us to go through. In the end, the rewards are sweet, but they require faith. And Jacob, Jacob is learning this lesson the hard way. Thus, Jacob's early married life is marked by these lessons. Man corrupts the covenant if left to his own sinful devices. He does so through a compromising situation, both Jacob and Laban, as we recall. It ends up with a very kind of a damper falling on the party. First day of the party was really fun and raucous. Everybody was happy. But the six days of celebration remaining, huh, there had to have been quite the cloud over Jacob's face, Leah's face, and probably Rachel's too. Something had gone horribly wrong. The consequences of sin of Jacob's former character have followed him to this point in Paddan Aram, and the sins of the fathers have repeated themselves. Now, I just want to give you a reference to back that up from Genesis 16, just to recall the situation of Abraham, Abram at this time, Sarai, and Hagar. In Genesis 16, 1 and 2, we have this. Now, Sarai 
Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. Did you hear that? Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. That's to be distinguished from Abraham listening to the voice of God. Abraham listening to the promises of the covenant. When the tests and trials of life come, what voice will you listen to? The voice of covenant compromise? The best ideas that you can come up with given the resources at your disposal? What's culturally normative and expected and seems to be a plan B, a legitimate one? After all, other people around you are doing it. It's accepted by your neighbors. Who will you listen to? Later in the, <clears throat> in the record, Jacob listens to the voice of Rachel and the voice of Leah and repeats the sins of the fathers. We see this, for instance, in chapter 30, verse 3. Then she said, this is Rachel speaking, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. You see, Jacob listened to Rachel's idea here, just like Abram listened to Sarai at the time, and then Jacob's guilty of it again, and listening to Leah when Leah offers her servant after a period of barrenness. What's the lesson? The lesson is this. Man, specifically men, are, sus are subject to the sin of passivity. And this was Adam's original sin in the garden, and it keeps showing up in the generations that follow. In Jacob's situation, it's like a malignant passivity. That means like because he is passive, just going along with the ideas that are suggested, listening to the pressures of, of the situation, his wife's ideas that aren't in accordance with the word of God. After all, God had ordained one man, one woman from the beginning as his picture, as his order in marriage. But since Jacob is passive and not taking a stand on God's word, not properly leading his family, he's just going along with the suggestions that are coming up. Men tend to be passive and distracted in their sin. Yet the consequences of this kind of thing are huge. When men are passive as to their duty before the Lord and don't handle the challenges that this fallen world present them well, they end up repeating the sins of the fathers all the way back to Adam himself, who failed to stomp on the servant's head, allowed the servant to deceive his wife, and then his wife talked him into eating the fruit, and pretty soon the whole human race is cast out of the garden in the presence of God. Why? In large part because of the passivity, the malignant passivity of our first covenant head, Adam. The sins of the fathers are nothing to shake, you know, they're nothing to scoff at. They're a real threat if you do not follow with conviction, men of God, the order, the prescription, the word that God has given you. You will be tested, especially in the context of our culture today, regularly. And the easiest thing to do is to listen to what sounds like a good idea, given your short-sighted analysis of the situation. It may not always be coming from your wife, but it could be coming from culture and so forth. But the important thing is, is to stand upon the covenant, to listen to the word of God. And in order to have convictions and to know what it says, you have to do just that. Be saturated with its precepts. So that when it's challenged, you have the discernment to understand and then you can patiently, lovingly, and boldly lead your family in a way that will be a blessing to them and be honoring to the Lord. <clears throat> Jacob's early married life, on the other hand, though, was marked by this covenant corruption. Major point number two, Jacob's early married life is marked by a family's hope deferred. Turn with me to Proverbs 13. What is hope deferred? Well, it's this concept expounded in Proverbs, that great book of wisdom literature. It simply means trusting in something that won't fullfill your, that's insufficient, won't, won't supply. That would be hope deferred, hope in the wrong thing. Proverbs 13 verse 12 speaks of this. Hope deferred, the author writes, makes the heart sick. 
but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope placed in an insufficient promise, an insufficient power or solution or person or thing or situation makes the heart sick. Uh, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So there's a contrast there. And in, as you apply this to Jacob's situation, and particularly as the story progresses to Leah herself, Leah has placed hope in son after son. That now, because I had son number three, perhaps my husband will love me. Perhaps my husband will love me. I, had, I bore him a firstborn son. Perhaps my husband will love me, son number four, and on and on it goes. Hope deferred, however, makes the heart sick. If you trust a situation to bring you happiness, but that situation is outside of the word, the will, the promises, and the covenant of God, it yields more and more sickness of the soul, despair. The author continues, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. The commandments, the word of God, that's where true hope should be placed, the author says in his many words. Verse 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Well, you see, right? Hope deferred is something like a snare of death. And he goes on this way. But that's a conceptual parallel to the situation in Genesis 29. With those words in mind, Let's read again a little bit in Genesis 29, 31, Leah's situation, a little window into her heart. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Verse 32, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Each one of the names that she chooses for these first four boys correspond with her heart at the time. When Reuben was born, uh, the name literally means, behold a son. Reuben means, behold a son. It's a celebration of life because she believes with the birth of Reuben, now her husband will love her. She knows that the only reason she's married to Jacob is because her father tricked Jacob and Jacob still resents that to this day. You know, whatever it is, seven plus years later. And now hope against hope, hope deferred. If I can bear my husband a son, then maybe he will love me. But her pain is only magnified when Reuben is born and Jacob's heart remains hard and partial. In other words, Jacob loves Rachel and does not share that same love with Leah. Now, this word or this uh, linguistic construction, behold a son, notice how that contrasts in the text with a prior reference. Have we, do you recall the word behold appearing in chapter 28? I'm sure you do, thinking back to our other messages. 28 12. And he, Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached heaven. And kids, what's the second thing we're, we're called to behold? Behold a ladder, and then what? Behold angels. And what are the angels doing? Descending, Descending and ascending. And then the third thing we're called to behold? Yahweh. Yahweh at the top. And then we continue to read verse 15. Yahweh himself says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So behold a ladder. There is reconciliation possible between a sinner and a holy God. Behold, the angels of God's ministering presence, His will is being accomplished in history to the last detail. Behold, the sovereign God who rules over it all, Yahweh at the head of the ladder. And behold, Yahweh's promise to you, covenant family line, I am with you always, the Emmanuel principle, God with us. I am with you always, no matter how difficult the journey. So what is Jacob and his family called to behold? God and His promises of salvation. And what does Leah behold instead? Oh, a firstborn son. Behold a son. Now, children are awesome. Children are a blessing. And you can't even describe the overwhelming joy that a child will bring. But our, script, or our passage illustrates to us that hope in children is no substitute for hope in Yahweh. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You see, Leah 
was called through Jacob's dream, but I suspect Jacob never really told her much about it, not to behold hope in your firstborn son, but behold hope in a son who would be born later on. Behold Yahweh, the latter, his angel, the promise of salvation, the gospel, the word of God, the covenant. And if you hope in those things, then there is true assurance. There is true health for your soul. You can endure trial and hardship and even the partial love of a sinful husband if you trust that God loves you so much that he would set up a ladder in a future son born of your seed, by the way, Leah, who will establish the connection between heaven and earth. Leah wasn't saved yet, presumably. She hadn't got it yet, presumably. Why? Because she was beholding hope in the wrong son. Not hope in Reuben, but behold, Jesus Christ. We see this uh, contrast in what the reader and the covenant family is called to behold. And it illustrates to us why this lady is struggling so and why over and over again her heart is discontent and despairing. And can we blame her? No, but we can also uh, pity her because in this situation there is a source of hope that she has not yet attained. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son, speaking of Leah, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon means the Lord has heard or heard. And again, there's a hope deferred here. Surely, if son number one wasn't enough to convince my son to love me, God has heard and answered again. And me providing my husband two sons now certainly will change his heart. And of course, it doesn't happen. And yet again, she becomes pregnant. Verse 34, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, th now this time my husband will be attached to me. And because I have borne him three sons, therefore his name was called Levi. Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Reuben. Behold a son. Simeon, I have been heard. Levi, attached. My husband now will surely love me. I am, after all, the one who is responsible for his three oldest. Incidentally, as the story progresses, the birthright of Jacob's family line does not go to Reuben, does not go to Simeon, and does not go to Levi. These, and we talked about this in the past, but there's revelation through these first three sons. And revelation teaches us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Man chooses a way or presumes a way of salvation, but God's ways are mysterious and he is sovereign. And the son, the true son of hope and significance would be the one by his appointment, not by Leah's decree. And so all three of these sons become disqualified for birthright status. Reuben goes on to commit a gross act of violation and immorality with one of Jacob's concubines. <clears throat> Simeon and Levi conspire violently with vengeance, taking matters into their own hands and uh, their cruel, deceptive plan, taking vengeance the violation of their sister is not uh, smiled upon by God nor Jacob, and they lose their birthright status. So this is one of the markings of Jacob's early married life, that although there are sons to boast of, and although there is a lot of hope invested in them, in the end, it does not satisfy. Because what is missing? What's missing in the heart at this point of Leah is the promise that I will be with you and will keep you. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So young people contemplating marriage down the road, uh, those of us who are already married, those of us who have been privileged to welcome children into our homes, those of us younger kids who have super good friends, your best friend, your pen pal, you need to remember this, that there is only one in the world, in the universe, who will never leave you and never forsake you. 
everyone else will forsake you and will abandon you in your hour of need. That is to say that hope, identity, assurance of the soul, security, self-worth cannot be placed in a husband, in a wife, in a child, in a best friend, or anyone else short of Jesus Christ first and foremost. Now, all those other relationships are awesome and can be redeemed and be very fulfilling. But the Lord is a jealous God. What that means is He deserves and will take nothing less than preeminence in your life. And if He doesn't have that preeminence, most important priority, if you are His child, He will discipline you until you realize Jesus is my ultimate hope. And His promise that He will be with me and never leave me and never forsake me is reason for me to have assurance, peace, and joy, even though we still struggle in our frailty. But at the end of our struggles, when we are in bringing our heart before the Lord in prayer, we can come to that resolution that the psalmist has. Nevertheless, Yahweh, who mean, that name means covenant keeper, has steadfast love, has said, which means that He will without condition on our part, always love us, never leave us, never forsake us. And by the way, Emmanuel, as we've mentioned before, is the name of Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That husband that will never fail, that child that will never leave, if you will, that relational, de uh, that relational deficit that we sense in our experience can only ultimately be filled by Jesus Christ. And upon that foundation... All other relationships ought to be established and can be healed in his holy name. Jacob's early married life is marked by these lessons. Man's covenant corruption, a family's hope deferred, and finally, Yahweh's covenant keeping. Again, everyone's a failure except God himself in Jacob's household. Now, I want you to notice something. It's just a conspicuously absent. Something is missing in Jacob's record. Uh, and it's this, none of the characters in these circumstances, now are they going through hard things? Of course, yeah, you can see it's like uh, pressing situations, challenges, despair and discouragement and deception and sin. Yet along, this, along these lines or in light of these challenges, we don't see anyone acknowledging the covenant of these characters. Not Jacob, his wives, uh, or anyone in the story at this point is acknowledging God's promises. That is, there's no altar moments, there's no prayer moments, and there is no testimony. This brings up a question by way of application. How much of our lives are lived, how much of our decisions are made unconscious of the covenant, of our relationship with the Lord? It's easy to point fingers at Jacob in the dysfunctional situation here and use it to grade ourselves on the curve and say, I'm not as bad as all of that. However, in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us that whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of the Lord. It's so Now, Jacob, this responsibility falls primarily on Jacob. He had the responsibility as the covenant head of his home to build that altar. He later does but to bring his family to that place in Bethel. That's what he should have done. We're going to take a trip. Things are difficult. My heart is hard. There's tension in my family. Let's saddle up the donkeys. We're going to Bethel. And I'm going to tell you the story of the ladder, the angels, Yahweh above, and his Emmanuel promise. Come with me, family. If Jacob had done that, I'm sure the circumstances would have been much different. Yet no altar acknowledgement, no prayer to Yahweh's offer, no testimony is obvious in the text. Are we guilty of this sometimes? How many of our big life decisions or how many of our small ones day to day are made unconscious of our relationship with the Lord? Jacob's lesson teaches us that our relationship with the Lord is so profound, so significant, so gracious, so powerful, so amazing that we ought to consider it in all of life's decisions. That every small step we make, every decision we make, and certainly the big directions that we choose in our lives ought to be made according to the Word of God. A change in career, a life direction, who to marry, where to go to college, higher education, what to study, vocation, all of these kinds of things that some of us in the hearing of this message may be facing, 
you know, what curriculum to use in homeschool. Um, how should I interact with my coworkers? You can think of a hundred things. As you're thinking about these, take that time to acknowledge the covenant. That is to set your mind in a line with the promises of the scriptures and with the gospel. And in that prayer and with that testimony to your family, try to set the terms and glean that perspective so that you are moving forward in your life and in your decisions in the context of the covenant, meaning your relationship with the Lord. The Lord steps in in our story today, and as He does so, He proves that He is the sovereign covenant keeper. Notice this evidence, first of all, in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. You see, there was a sovereign reason that uh, Leah was having kids and Rachel did not, uh, Rachel's womb remained closed. The Lord had a purpose. No one in the story knew it yet, but the Lord did. It came, became more obvious, though, it seems, to Leah. And there's a significant shift in her heart that we perceive between child Levi and child Judah. Notice verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased from bearing. Judah means praise. You see this heart change here? What happened was with each child before, there's this sort of pitiful pattern, this desperate plea, maybe my husband will love me now. Maybe my husband will love me now. Maybe my husband will love me now. Child four, this time I will praise the Lord. It's a moving change in the heart of Leah. Perhaps she was converted with the birth of Judah. And she places no contingencies upon this situation, but submits in her heart in this moment to the sovereign hand of God. Rather than holding out hope that one more child would glean me favor with my husband, rather than hope against hope that my personal selfish situation will get better, Feeling more and more if she allowed that resentment to sink in, that life isn't fair and why me and self-pity and I'm a victim. She lets that all go in this confession by saying, I will praise the Lord. Praising the Lord in light of deep and difficult trial is an incredible step of faith because it says, I know that you know what you're doing. You are in charge. And although it feels like my life is falling apart, I know that's the devil or the shortness of my thinking. But you have a perfect plan. I don't know what it is, but I do know I can trust you. Help my unbelief. This last child, Judah, signals a heart change in Leah. I mean, she's going to you know, wrestle with sin in the future for sure. But don't we all? Nevertheless, this is a significant moment. Judah, meaning praise. This time I will praise the Lord. Mark say it's a marked contrast to the hope deferred that she attached to the names of her former children. And isn't it interesting to note that Judah would go on to be, in fact, the chosen one, the significant son. From Judah would spring Jesus Christ eventually and continue the covenant line. In a moment, you can turn to Revelation 5 as we'll close with that text. The Lion of the tribe of Judah has answered the prayers of Leah and all who place their trust in him. Before we pause at that verse, we won't go to this one this week, but one of my favorites to illustrate the principle in view here, or a principle in view here, is found in Luke chapter 1, 46 through 55. That's Mary's Magnificat. And in Mary's song, she is chosen as an unlikely bride to bear the child of promise. And we're talking the child of promise, Jesus Christ. The son that Judah uh, signaled from before, the son that Jacob prefigured, the son that Isaac, the son that Abraham, and all of the covenant line prefigured. And she was called to bear that son. And what does Mary confess? She confesses that she is lowly, that she is poor, unqualified both in her sin and her life situation for such a glorious honor. But her song is amazing. Like Leah in this moment when Judah is born, she simply praises the Lord and says, 
you know what? You exalt the lowly and you dethrone the humble. And that picture is seen all the way back in Jacob's experience. It's interesting that the favored bride, uh, Rachel, wasn't the bride chosen to bear the seed of the Messiah, but instead the outcast, the unloved one, Leah. You might feel like an outcast. You might feel like life isn't fair, that the situations in your life have dealt you, you know, just uh, a more affliction than you think is warranted. I mean, don't we all struggle with that sometimes? Well, the hope and message of hope in Scripture is that God not only has purposes in affliction, but he is all about exalting the lowly. One day, this ragtag band, there's just a few of us here in church today, but we join all kinds of outcasts, misfits, and great sinners across this globe and across history. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? That was the one that Jesus, among the first that Jesus revealed the gospel to, was a woman who was an ethnic outcast. And she wasn't even supposed to be chatting with the Jews. Culturally speaking, it was taboo. Jesus revealed to her her sin and that he was the source of living water in the wilderness, salvation. At the spring of Shur in the wilderness, Jesus revealed to the outcast, Hagar, the Egyptian servant, despised and abandoned, that he was the living God that sees her. And thus that place of God's provision was forever marked, bare, laha roy, the well of the living God who sees me. And this is what Mary announces. This is what the barren Hannah celebrated when she became pregnant. This is what Elizabeth echoed when she, in her old age and barren, became the mother of John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for Jesus, who was born of a virgin, an unlikely, unassuming woman who would be mocked because of the situation, because what was conceived in her was by the power of the Holy Spirit. But all of this was to reveal to us that God's will is profound, and sometimes it's a mystery, but you can trust it. Don't trust man's whim. It always leads to heartache, despair, and discouragement, and dysfunction, and sin. Trust God's will. He has purpose and affliction. He will lift up the lowly. He will seat us in heavenly places with Jesus Christ, because our Lord and Savior rose from the dead. We who are in him will likewise rise and be ascended into glory. And talk about the privilege and the joy and the prosperity we will enjoy in the next life when we are seated at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. None can compare, nothing can compare to that privilege. And the eyes of faith allow us to endure the difficult and the desperate situations, the affliction, the discouragement, and the humility that sometimes colors our way between now and then. In Revelation chapter 5, we close with verses 1 through 5. Listen. Then I saw John writing in a vision. He sees Jesus. This is the son of Jacob, if you will. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Sometimes life seems to conspire so intensely against us that God's purposes and God's will appears to us like a sealed scroll. I know that your gospel says this. I know that you promised this for me, Lord. But I am desperate. I am weary. And I am in despair because it seems that no one has the power to open up the scroll. Everything I've placed my hope and trust in in this life and in my experience has failed me. And what's the answer to John? What's the answer to you? Weep not. There is one who can open the scroll, who can reveal God's purposes and open to you the scroll of faith, the scroll of promise, the scroll of salvation, the scroll of the gospel, the scroll of history, where you will be reunited with him in glory one day as you ascend Jacob's ladder. Who is Jesus Christ? And who is that? The lion of the tribe of Judah. It would be the son of the son of the son of the son and so on. The fourth child of the reject bride 
Leah, who at the moment of the birth of her son simply made this confession, though life is as, is as difficult as it is, nevertheless, I will praise Yahweh. She uses the personal covenant-keeping name of the Lord. And you can relate to her confession and more if you've placed your faith in her son, Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, to defend you, to fulfill his promises, to never leave you and never forsake you. This is the promise of the gospel. Will you turn your heart to him and repent of anything that has caused your hope to be deferred and your heart to grow sick? Let us pray in this regard. Lord, we thank you for the promises of your Holy Scripture. We thank you that they're absolutely certain and assured in Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that though we doubt, we have no excuse. And we thank you that our hearts are quickened and encouraged when we see evidence of those who have endured in some ways even greater affliction than us and have done so in faith with less of a promise, so to speak, the shadow and the type of old, knowing that a Messiah would come on the horizon. And we who are born privileged, such as we are in history, after Christ has come, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is our Savior and Lord. And in Him should true and ultimate hope be invested. Father, forgive us of the times when we fall short in this regard and place our bets of happiness in other things. Help us to trust you more each day. Help us to grow in the knowledge of the truth. And if there are any in the hearing of this message who have not repented and turned from their sins, turned from their sources of hope, to place faith in the only one who has the power to give it, Jesus Christ, I pray that they would repent on their knees, that they would turn their face toward glory and see heavens open, the heavens open, and Jesus Christ, the bridge through his death and his resurrection for their sins between them and a holy God. Thank you, Lord, for these promises. We pray as far as they have been rightly proclaimed that you would write them on the tables of our hearts as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.